as I indicated to you last week, we are beginning a study into the book of Ruth, but before we were getting there, we paused to look at Proverbs 31 and looking at a portion of it last week with a view to finishing it this week. And as I explained to you last week, the primary reason we're looking at Proverbs 31 is because in the Hebrew canon, that is the Hebrew Old Testament, before the Septuagint came along and rearranged how the books were ordered, Ruth follows Proverbs 31 because of the primary descriptor of Ruth, the Eshachal, is exactly what Proverbs 31 is about. In fact, that very phrase is right here in verse 10 when you see it, of course, at the ESV, it's the excellent wife. And as I said to you, the uh, Proverbs 31 is laying out what an excellent wife or a wife of noble character or a wife of strength or whatever phrase your translation may use. Literally, in Hebrew, it is wife of strength, but strength in that, and with that, in that particular context has different connotations. Uh, it doesn't just mean like she's physically strong, i.e. she can lift heavy things. That means that her strength is primarily located in her character. And so when you think the woman of virtue, the noble wife or the excellent wife, what it's getting at is the wife of character. And as I indicated to you last week, so oftentimes when people approach passages like this, it's either it's so known to them or to us that we overlook it, or it feels so unattainable that we throw our hands up and say, ugh, why bother? And I want you to understand, and I want us all to understand this. When we see passages like this, there's another one that I think is very similar to this in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 13. When you read 1 Corinthians 13 and you read Paul's description of love, it is easy to look at that and throw up your hands and go, who can do this? Proverbs 31, we need to get straight of what it's, what it's doing. And I'm going to come back around to this here in just a few minutes. Scripture is never meant to exasperate us. It's not. Scripture is never meant to condemn righteousness or condemn the people of God in their actions. Scripture will convict. Scripture will condemn sin. Scripture will bring judgments against what is wicked and evil. But passages like this are not meant to be weights around our necks that weigh us down. In fact, it is actually quite the opposite of that. Passages like this, like Proverbs 31, like 1 Corinthians 13 and what love is, are meant to be liberating texts to remind us when we live in and through and by the wisdom of God, excellent character is the fruit of that. That's what's going to happen. Now, it may look different in different contexts, and in, it may be applied differently for different people for different reasons, but there is a base level amount of truth that is that is right and real. When you look at Proverbs 31, one of the phrases that we should hang on to, really cling to, I mean, all of it is important. All of it is God-breathed. All of it is divine and inspired. And all of it is beneficial for training in righteousness. But that, that phrase about her fearing the Lord is the driving, or the driving idea in this entire passage. It's the driving idea. That's what we really want to work toward. And so I don't want to get too ahead of myself, but this morning we're going to take verses 10 through 31 as a whole and look at this in preparation for our transition to the book of Ruth. So beloved of God, this morning, 
focus your minds and hearts on Proverbs 31, starting in verse 10 through the rest of the chapter. This is God's infallible, inerrant word. An excellent wife who can find. She is far more precious than jewels. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack of gain. She does him good and not harm all the days of her life. She seeks wool and flax and works with willing hands. She is like the ships of the merchant. She brings her food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. She considers a field and buys it. With the fruit of her hands, she plants a vineyard. She dresses herself with strength and makes her arms strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff, and her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She is not afraid of snow for her household, for all her household is clothed in scarlet. She makes bed coverings for herself. Her clothing is fine linen and purple. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. She makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to the merchant. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the time to come. She opens her mouth with wisdom, and the teaching of kindness is on her tongue. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. Her children rise up and call her blessed. Her husband also and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful, and beauty is vain, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her of the fruit of her hands, and let her works praise her in the gates. So ends the reading of God's Word. May He add His blessing. Please pray with me. Oh, Father, <clears throat> Your Word is before us this morning, and it is a rich, beautiful, challenging Word. And yet, You call us to read it, to drink it in, and, Father, to put it to practice. And so, reach our minds and hearts with truth. Don't let Satan or any other evil snatch away what is good, right, true, and beautiful. And, God, transform us by the power of Your Word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. When, we, when I think of this passage of Scripture, there's actually one word that comes to my mind. It may be somewhat surprising to you, but it is the word beauty. And when we think of the word beauty or the concept of beauty, beauty, the discussion about what is beautiful, is as old as humanity itself. And we're not unaccustomed to that discussion, right? I mean, we are very, we're, we're very, uh, we have eyes. The Lord has given us eyes and we see and there are things that we find beautiful there are things that we do not find beautiful. But when we think about beauty, we've heard the phrases over the year, uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. If you have listened to that Sinclair Ferguson message that Richard and I heard live at the Ligonier Conference about marriage, he talks about that particular phrase. If you haven't listened to it yet, why not? You should. Please make sure you do. But beauty is in the eye of the beholder. We, we, we've heard that. We understand, yes, that the person that we, each individual sees beauty in a very individual way. 
Of course, on a less positive scale, we've heard beauty is only skin deep. And in Alabama, where I grew up, people would add to that, beauty is only skin deep, but ugly is to the bone. Now, you wouldn't ever want to say that to somebody, um, because I may or may not have said that as a young man when I was trying to really cut somebody deep. And, and it can, but we could say, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Beauty is only skin deep. But there's something about beauty that really does capture us. Because here's what I want to tell you this morning. Beauty is not as subjective as we often suppose. We tend to think of, well, what I think is beautiful is fine. What I think is beautiful you may think is ugly. And what you think is, or what you think is beautiful I may think is not, a, not beautiful or whatever, or so forth and so on. But beauty actually is not as subjective. And I'll tell you why. And it's because we often confuse beauty with attraction. We sometimes equate beauty with attraction, i.e., what I'm attracted to, I find beautiful. What you're attracted to, you find beautiful. And I'm not saying that that's untrue, but I'm saying that's not all that beauty is. There, there is something objective about beauty because personal attraction is not the long and the short of what is beautiful. There is an objectivity to beauty because beauty is only minimally about appearance, about what we can see. There is something far deeper and richer about beauty. It's the iceberg picture. The tip of it, you see, but there's so much about beauty that is underneath the surface, that is about character, that is about heart. And so when we measure what is true, beautiful, and good, we say that our faith is beautiful, not because it's always outwardly attractive, but because it gets at the heart of who we are. And so when we think of beautiful people, we think of them as not just outwardly attractive, but people who have character, people who have heart and dignity and integrity, people who are honest and pure and gracious and kind and, and loving. And so that beauty becomes a mixture of appearance and character, which is why when you sometimes, and I know we've probably all been guilty of this, you see a couple together and you think, wow, he married above his pay grade. Or, you know, she, she might could have done a lot better. And it's because what they see in that spouse is something beyond the outward. It's something inside that draws them in. And all the days of their life, they will see beauty and what you cannot see because they're looking deeper than the flesh. And so when we look at Proverbs 31, what are we getting here? We are getting a glimpse at what is beautiful, a glimpse at true beauty, a glimpse at something that far outstrips mere outward appearance. If you look at these 22 verses that I just read to you from Proverbs 31, and you look at the, go back and scan them back over, these verses are about an excellent wife. And I want you to note what is not mentioned is her appearance. It tells you how she lives. It tells you where her heart is. It tells you of her integrity. It tells you of her industry. It tells you of her character. It tells you of her submissiveness. It tells you of her heart for the Lord. It does not say, and she is a real good looker. It doesn't say that. 
because it's not the point. The point is to look beyond what we see at a person who is truly beautiful for who they are before the Lord. And it is an awesome picture when we began to work out in our minds and in our hearts that we're being told what, what is actually beautiful. So this whole paragraph is about her character and the outworking of her character. When, here's what I want to do here. When we look at Proverbs 31, the one thing I need to help us understand is this is not a strict prescription for women. It is easy to look at this and think, well, I don't live up to this. And my, my guess is you don't, but you know what? Here's true confession time. I don't either. When I look at everything here, this is convicting for me, even though I'm not an, an excellent wife. As a, as a man who takes the Scripture seriously, I look at this and go, wow, I don't know that I could live up to this. Here's the point. What the writer is doing for us here, he's giving us an ideal picture of what, what the, the, the fruit of wise living. This, so this is an ideal personified picture of wisdom. Should we aim for this? Absolutely. But the heart of it is captured in, in characters like Ruth. So when you see Ruth, Ruth doesn't have maidens. Ruth is not making her own yarn. Ruth is not, you know, clothing Naomi in purple. She can't afford it. But Ruth is an excellent wife. Why? Because she fears the Lord and she serves those she loves and she genuinely loves. We're getting the heart of it. We're getting the heart of her willingness to come under the, the, the mission of Naomi and then the, the mission of Boaz. Right? That's what submissiveness means. And so we're getting a picture here. And so Proverbs 31 is giving us the ideal picture of wisdom personified and really what it looks like to follow God's wisdom. This is what it looks like when we follow God's wisdom. There are certain things that will be true of us. And so when we think about this, then Proverbs 31 becomes a great model for a godly woman but it also becomes a great model for anyone who would want to apply wisdom to their lives. So the real heart behind Proverbs 31 is this, and it's very simple. It's this. It's a call to godliness. That's what it is. Godliness that is practically worked out. In other words, it's not just how well you worship, but it's how well you live. Right? Godliness is not just how well you worship. It is how well we live our lives. Do we take these principles that we have worked out in theory and theologically, and are we applying them in the way that we live? Because an unapplied theology is absolutely worthless, but an applied theology is invaluable. When we take truth and we put it to work in our lives, that is what is called applied theology, and it is irreplaceable. There's nothing that comes close to having that as a jewel in our lives because we're taking the precepts of truth and we're living them out. And so when we look at this, Ruth follows this, as I've already said, precisely because she embodies this chapter. And when, when we look at Ruth, you'll see that not everything from Proverbs 31 was true of Ruth, but the spirit of it is. And that's the point. And so, when you look at Ruth and Boaz, you'll find that even Boaz captures the heart 
of Proverbs 31. And so, really what we're looking at is the major thrust of this is the major thrust of all texts, godliness and the imitation of Christ. And so, with those thoughts in mind, there's this. There's this one idea that wisdom is the expression of godliness, that wisdom really is the expression of godliness. And so we have on display here something I won't, I won't come back to. I mean, I've already said it. This is the beauty of wisdom. So the beauty of wisdom is what we're looking at here when wisdom is applied. And so when we think about what is the highest aim of those in covenant with God, one of the highest aims that we can harness and we can shoot for is to live wisely. Why? Because biblical wisdom is equated with godliness. When we live out the precepts of wisdom, we are living and walking, or we are living godly lives and walking in the imitation of Christ. That's the idea. And so right out of the gate, we're going to talk about what is wise. Uh, Proverbs often likes to personify wisdom, and it's awful because the, the, the word wisdom in both Hebrew and Greek is feminine, so usually wisdom is personified as a, a woman or a wife. We're getting this personification here. So an excellent wife, who can find? She is far more precious than jewels. As I've already told you, the Hebrew word there, wife of strength, eshethail, wife of strength, what is she? She's noble, she's excellent, she's got integrity, she's a woman of character, we've already said all this, but she's, an, she's a picture of ideal wisdom. Now, I want you to notice this, that he says, she's far more precious than jewels. What does that mean? She's invaluable. That this type of wisdom, this type of person is not only a nice commodity, they're invaluable. Why? Because they live out precepts of truth. They live out precepts of wisdom. Now, we need to appreciate just how important Proverbs 31.10 is, because in Proverbs 18, chapter 18, verse 22, he who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. We need to appreciate that one of the pinnacles of wisdom literature was finding a spouse, a helpmeet, a wife of good character, and living with her and watching the Lord work through and in and with her. And if, like me, you have been married to a wife of, of good character for any amount of time, you understand how valuable it is. It's not just a great friendship, but there's great counsel. There's a partnership, and it truly is a blessing. We don't have to turn there, but in Luke chapter 7, in the context of John the Baptist, Luke writes in verse 35, wisdom is proven or justified by all her children. What is that saying? That the fruit of wisdom shows how valuable wisdom is when one lives in keeping with the wisdom of God. And so as this wife begins, so, so the overarching idea, an excellent wife, wife of strength, who can find she is invaluable. Then there's four subcategories under this that I think we can look at. And the first one of those is verses 11 and 12. There is the idea of submissiveness, that the excellent wife really does come under the mission of her husband. Now, here's what we, I've, I've said this when we talked in, in, in the uh, pastoral epistles, it bears repeating here 
So often in culture, the word submission has been made into a dirty word, as if somehow we value women less. You can't value women less when they're placed on this pedestal. And in fact, in the area of provision, we'll get here in just a moment, the writer here gives women an equal status in provision for the house. He's almost given a masculine role in what she's able to do in providing for her house. So there is no devaluing women here. There's the sense of he's bringing them on par with she's just as valuable to the house as any other component. Now, she does follow her husband, come under his mission. He's leading in a, in a good and godly way, and she, she goes with him. How do we know that? How do we even know that that's true? Because the word submission is never used. Just read. She do, uh, the heart of her husband trusts in her. Beloved, that is a powerful statement. The heart of her husband trusts in her, and he will have no lack. Not he might not. He will have no lack. In other words, he's not even worried about it. He doesn't think about it because the heart of her husband trusts in her. What does that tell us? She's doing something well and right that he doesn't even think. So, so we see that this submission or this submissive idea. She does him good, not harm, all the days of her life. She seeks the good of her spouse. How do we show wisdom? Well, one, we love God and we love our families. We love the people that God has placed in our midst. We love God and we love our families. Two, she does good to him all the days of her life. She seeks the, the good of her spouse. What is spouse? What is wisdom's aim? Wisdom aims at goodness. It aims at peace. It aims at what brings joy and stability and peace to the home. That should always be the aim. That should be our aim in any relationship, to bring peace, to bring the peace of God to bear that shalom, that beautiful, beautiful, beautiful word. That means a sense of wholeness. Not the lack of turmoil, not the lack of conflict, not the lack of hardship, but that sense of wholeness that is to be pervasive in relationships. Only Christ can give it fully, but we who bear His image, who live in relationship with others, should be seeking that as well, especially husband and wife, one to the other. When we see wisdom here, one of the ways in which she's identified is that her husband trusts in her. She works for his good, not his harm, all the days of her life. There is no lack of gain. Well, what we're looking at, what is wisdom? Well, what, what wisdom is biblically is always seen as submitting to what is right. Again, why does Ruth follow this? Because if we could define Ruth in any way, she's submitting to what is right, right? Uh, Naomi is widowed. She's lost her husband, and she's lost her sons. What is Ruth going to do? Going to go with her and become a worker, become almost like a servant of Naomi. Why? Because it's good and right to love the most vulnerable among you. That's why. Why does she uh, seek out Boaz? Because she sees him as a kinsman redeemer, a provider, and one who can help restore the name that Naomi needs to restore so her family didn't lose the land. So we see that wisdom is working for the good of other people. It's not vindictive. It's not petty. It doesn't seek vengeance when it feels like it's been wronged. 
are we seeing the dovetailing of wisdom and love. They are wound up. The study of wisdom is not just clever aphorisms or arguments or propositions to catch people. It is bound up, intertwined with love because it seeks peace and goodness. So that means that wisdom will compel us to choose what is good when there are easier choices. Wisdom will compel us to seek truth when falsehood is easier. Wisdom will compel us to open ourselves up rather than to retreat in self-protection for the good of other people. Wisdom is a hard call, but it is a good one. When you look at Ruth, and we'll go over all this again, but when you look at Ruth, what did Ruth do? Well, there was a cultural expectation of Ruth. Naomi hit on it. Go home. Go back to your family. Go serve your father's house. Go back to your own country and go back to your own gods. And we remember, or at least I do, that iconic statement of Ruth, where you go, I will go. Your gods will be my gods. Your people will be my people. And where you are buried, I will be buried there. What she does is she goes against cultural expectations in pursuit of what is wise, loving, and beautiful to serve another human being. She chose submission. She came under the mission of another, and it flourished. So the excellent wife, we see the submission there. Verses 13 to 19, and it's not just here, but the primary thrust of 13 through 19 is industry. We find this industrious nature, this industrious spirit. So diligence, not laziness, is a mark of wisdom. In fact, we could argue, well, we, well, we, we can argue, this is not a potential argument, this is an established truth. As those created in the image of God, we are created to labor and not be idle. Hence, we are created to labor, we are created to marry, and we are created to rest. Those are the three things that are true of humans, whether they are religious or not. And so industry, it's a natural part of what is wise. It's diligence. It's not laziness. We see this captured throughout these verses, through verses 13 through 19. She seeks wool and flax. She's working with willing hands. So the first thing we see is that she's working with her hands. She's faithful to labor for a way. She's committed to fidelity. What, how can I serve how can I serve my home? With my hands. I can do things with my hands. I can bring value to our home. It says these verses that, that like ships, so we're making a comparison, like ships of the merchant, she brings food from afar. She rises while it is yet night and provides food for her household and portions for her maidens. So she brings in food. She, she busies herself with provision and efficiency. She's laboring. She's doing things these are not just so that she can have a feather in her cap. Beloved, these are motivated by her character. These are motivated by a genuine sense of love for people in her home. That she's not slothful. If you look, she rises while it's yet night. Or literally, she rises while it's still dark. The word there, Lila, the Hebrew word for night. She rises while it's still dark. She considers a field and buys it with what? The fruit of her hands. And then she plants a vineyard and then so forth and so on. So she brings in food. She busies herself. She's not slothful. She labors long 
for the good of others. It's not selfishly driven, it's others driven. And when we think about community, this is also where wisdom becomes intertwined. That's what wisdom would compel us to do, is to labor for the good of others. She dresses herself with strength. This is getting at character. She makes her arm strong. She perceives that her merchandise is profitable. Her lamp does not go out at night. She puts her hand to the distaff. Her hands hold the spindle. She opens her hands to the poor, to the needy. When we look at this lady, we are seeing one who has an attentive eye toward her family. But I want you, lest you read this and become who can live up to this, I want us also to notice that she has maidens that she provides for. What does that mean? It means she has servants. Well, what does that mean? It means she's not doing all this by herself. So, ladies, we can breathe a sigh of relief here. You can start looking at this and get, I mean, as a man, I'm looking at this and getting wide-eyed and thinking, man, who can, oh, well, she has maidens that help her. Um, so, let's keep in mind that the picture here is one who is living in a community where many hands make light work, where there are many hands to labor. But what's the, what's, what's the rub, what, what's the thrust here? Well, not that she necessarily has to do everything by herself. That's not the point. Delegation is a beautiful thing when we do it, but it's that she's attentive to it, that she's got an attentive mind and heart, that she uses her resources to the best of her ability to serve herself and to serve her family, to serve the ones that she loves. Verse 16, we're told she considers a field and buys it. She considers a field and buys it. What is that getting at? She's financially sound. She's not a frivolous spender. She invests wisely and uses that investment. Can I just say something here? That there, what we're getting a view of here is the prudence of frugality. When you look at Proverbs, it constantly is putting a sense of frugality and frivolity next to each other, and it's making comparison of those things. Now, when you hear frugality, do not hear miserly. You can be frugal and generous. You can be frugal and with a mind toward other people. The miserly would be like Ebenezer Scrooge, who doesn't want to give one cent to anybody because it's his or it's mine. You haven't earned it. No, the frugal person looks for ways to spend well so that they can give generously in other places. And we should be that. That, that is the beauty of wisdom, is to live within our means. She lives within her means. She buys out of the fruit of what she earns. And that's the beauty of wisdom. What does it mean that she's strong? She dresses herself with strength. We read that a while ago. That she lives by God's standards, not her flesh, not the expectations of the world, not the culture. Her stamina and her merchandise, they tell the story of this person, beloved, who have a heart to live and serve well. Not everybody's going to look the same. You won't look the same as your neighbor, and your neighbor won't look the same as you, and you won't look the same as Ruth. But the heart behind this is, is it my heart to live well before the Lord and His people? That's the, that's the glaring question. 
because it transitions here from her industry to her generosity. She opens her hand to the poor and reaches out her hands to the needy. She's not afraid of snow for her household, for her household is, is clothed in scarlet. When you read scarlet there, don't think of like royal robes. Think of a thicker garment that helps protect in winter. And so we see her own generosity. She gives as an act of love, not grudgingly. The poor and needy come to her. And what, what the giving here, it gives of time and money to those who need help and grace, to those who find themselves in a position of less fortune. But it also, there's a balance here. She gives to the poor and needy. She gives richly to her house. She looks to the ways of her house, it'll say a little bit later. But what I love when it talks about giving to her home, there's two ideas we need to see here. There's practicality. <laughs> they have nice sheets. They have clothes on. There's also philosophically, I want you to look at this. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders of the land. Why do you think it would mention that in a personification of wisdom as an excellent wife? Because she is an adornment to her husband. The people know her husband, and they look at his life, and they are well aware that he has a valuable partner laboring with him because, she, because of her wisdom, because of her industry, because of her submissiveness, because of her generosity. Her husband is known in the gates when he sits among the elders she makes linen garments and sells them. She delivers sashes to merchants. All this stuff, it gets at her generosity. So she supports her home with both resources and moral support. When we think about wisdom, like I said, it's so easy to let it remain academic. But on a, on a very street level, wisdom is trying to build up those we love. It's taking truth and building up those we love. Loving well. Loving, we could even say, theologically well. Taking the things that we know that are true about God and about us and about life in general and bringing them to bear in relationship. He brings this paragraph to a close, these last, what, seven-ish verses, 25 through 31. And I love this. This really gets at the heart, heart of her character. You can see her character in everything. It's woven throughout here, but this gets at the heart of the character. So what is wisdom? It is a reflection of the character of, Yah of Yahweh. Strength and dignity are her clothing, and she laughs at the times to come. Why does she laugh at the times to come? What is that getting at? Not frivolity. She's not just laughing because she doesn't care or is ignorant. No, that, that is, she's not worried or anxious about the times to come. Why? because her trust is in the Lord. She's clothed with dignity. She's clothed with strength. She opens her mouth with what? With wisdom and the teaching of kindness. That word kindness there, you've heard me mention this word many times, is on her tongue, chesed, steadfast love. It is so often related to covenant. And in fact, the word there for teaching is a cognate or a derivative of the word Torah, the word Torah being the Hebrew word for law. So what you really have here, if we were to break this down technically, is covenant instruction is on her tongue. What is she doing? She's opening her mouth with wisdom. 
And what is she teaching? The covenant of Yahweh is on her tongue. And then it bleeds right in. She looks well to the ways of her household and does not eat the bread of idleness. So one, she's efficient. She's not lazy. But she looks well to the ways of her household by preaching and teaching and leading with her children in covenant instruction, i.e., the words of God are on her tongue. That's what we get. That's what wisdom, the wise parent does, the wise household does. So when we look at, at this, if there is no truth, there is no wisdom. Where there is no wisdom, there is no real love. And where there is no truth, wisdom, and love, beloved of God, there will be no Christ. If we conceive of a Christ who is devoid of truth, that is a false Christ. If we conceive of a Christ who is devoid of love, that is a false Christ. If we conceive of a Christ who is devoid of biblical wisdom, that is a false Christ. Without that trio, wisdom, truth, and love, religion becomes hollow. Her children rise up and call her blessed, her husband also, and he praises her. Many women have done excellently, and that word excellently is the same word as the word for excellent wife. Many women have been women of strength, but you surpass them all. Charm is deceitful. And beauty, that outward beauty, that physical appearance is vain. But a woman who fears the Lord. Talk about one of the biggest buts in Scripture. But a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. How is she noted? She's praised. Why? Absolutely because she fears the Lord. Not because she's the most efficient not because she's got the best mittens this side of the Mississippi, not because her wool and her flax are the most, are the bestest, not because her merchandise is top quality, not because her scarlet is the purest scarlet. All those things are good. She's praised because she outwardly, visibly, demonstrably fears the Lord. And her fear of the Lord drives her to be the best she can be. Beloved, if you are a man or a woman in this room, all of us, the fear of the Lord should drive us to be the best person we can be in every outlet in which we find ourselves, every venue. And that's what's said of her. She's praiseworthy because of her commitment to the Lord. Give her of the fruit of her hands, he ends it, and let her works praise her in the gates. You'll see that's exactly what happens in Ruth. That's a fitting, that's a fitting ending to this because that's exactly what happens in Ruth. The excellent wife is praiseworthy because she lives her life in a way that honors God and honors her loved ones. So when we see wisdom, wisdom is truth and faith lived out. And when we think of wisdom, we probably tend to think of great thinkers like Solomon, right, or, or Socrates, or Plato, or Aristotle. Solomon was not perfect. We, you can read Ecclesiastes and find out all about Solomon or any of the historical narrative books. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Plutinus, Herodotus, all those people, Marcus Aurelius, they wrote great academic 
wise things. But wisdom in its purest form is not merely academic. It's simple. It is scriptural truth lived out. That is what wisdom is. Scriptural truth lived out. And so wisdom is godliness. So the twin pillars of wisdom will always be truth and faith. And the clearest manifestation of those in daily life will be a God-centered, God-honoring life and love. So when we think of Ruth, as we, this has been a, an extended introduction to the book of Ruth. When we think about Ruth, we think about one of the things that we're going to glean from that text. It's what true, sacrificial, loving wisdom look like. And both Ruth and Boaz will teach us that. So this morning, the challenge to us is to be clothed in godliness that the wisdom of the Lord might shine brightly through our lives. Please pray with me. Father, thank you for the word this morning. It's power. It's practical. God, it challenges us when we look at this. Yes, we, we can look at this and, and throw up our hands perhaps and say there is no way. And God, there is a way. There is a way for us to live wisely before you, and it begins with believing, trusting, and seeking to apply everything that we know and believe. And so, Father, forgive us for not doing that. Forgive us for often assuming that wisdom is this unattainable reality only for the truly heady, intelligent people. Yet wisdom is as simple as can be because it's just that challenge for us to take your truth and live out its precepts. So, Father, give us the grace each day to do that. Give us the strength, the desire to do that. And may your Spirit lead us in all truth as you've promised. It's through Christ we pray. Amen.